All right, so welcome. Welcome back to lesson number five of Good to See You of Advice for Life. Um, all right, so we are going to get started. Tonight's class is all about adversity, all about adversity. And in order to give us a taste of the class, we put a chair right by the door. A little adversity to get this evening started. That's how we roll. But in all, uh, in all seriousness, they tell a story about a, uh, a fellow who gets hit. You guys know this one, the guy who gets hit by the bus? Jewish guy? Gets hit by the bus? Paramedic comes by. Pa- paramedic says, uh, are you okay? Are you comfortable? He says, I make an okay living. You know that one? Oh, yeah. All right, or the, you know, the difference between a Jewish pessimist and a Jewish optimist. The pessimist says, man, it's bad. The optimist says, oh, it can get worse. That's the, <laughs> yeah. Or what a waiter at a Jewish restaurant says, is anything okay? All right, you guys know all this. Classic, classic Jewish jokes. We're talking tonight about adversity. We've talked about wealth and work. We've talked about family and relationships. We've talked about um, uh, health, physical health and healing. And we've even talked about mental health and emotional wellness. Tonight, we explore challenge and adversity. We all face adversity in one form of another. Whether it's, you know, a flat tire, a flight delay, whether it's a person in our life that's causing us a little bit of strife and some contention, we all face, to one extent or another, we all face adversity. And the question on the table tonight is this. Powerful question and a very, a very, uh, a very direct question. How, what is the best way to show up to challenge? What is the best way to face adversity? What we're going to do is explore this from a uniquely Jewish perspective using the guidance, the direct guide, life guidance and advice from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a blessed memory. The Rebbe, as we've discussed throughout this course, advised literally tens of thousands of people, individuals of, from all walks of life during his 40 plus years at the helm of the Chabad Lubavitch movement. And so, Throughout uh, his correspondences, there is a wealth, just an incredible amount of, of wisdom in his responses, and a lot of it has to do with dealing with challenge and adversity. We're going tonight to look at four different areas of application, four different areas, life areas, in which we might be faced with challenge and adversity and see how the Rebbe guided individuals through those, uh, you know, through those challenges, how to face challenge, how to perceive challenge, because a lot of it begins with attitude. How you view challenge is going to directly impact how you, fa- how, you, how you show up to face that challenge. In other words, the perspective is key. Perspective is key. So tonight we're gonna gain a perspective, and I think it's a powerful perspective. We have tonight's class divided into a number of acts. Jacob, I think your, uh, your headpiece, your headpiece uh, fell. Uh, tonight's class is divided into Five acts, act number one, when the going goes wrong. Act number two, the heart attack and the blizzard. Act number three, Israel and Washington. Act number four, take a hike to the moon. And act number five, when our tears will dry. We have an incredible class in store for all of you. I'm excited about this. This, this course is like fine wine. It gets better with age. Every class, every week, 
We're just getting better and better. All right, so let's begin lesson five, advice for life. And the way we're going to begin is with two stories from the Talmud. This is act one, act one, when the going goes bad. Two stories from the Talmud. Story number one is not in the book. You know, we're off the books. Hey, hey, good to see you. Um, yeah, this, this, uh, this first story is off, but you have it in front of you. You have it in front of you in the form of a sheet of paper that says advice for life, lesson five, supplementary text. It talks about Rabbi Akiva, who lived about 1900 years ago. Rabbi Akiva, as we know, hey, good evening. Rabbi Akiva was one of the greatest scholars and Jewish teachers of all time. And the crazy thing is, he did not know how to read Hebrew until the age of 40. All of his studies began at the age of 40, and he became, again, one of the greatest scholars and teachers of all time. Take a look at this wild story as told in the Talmud. I am going to read this one. Rav Huna said, that Rav said, that Rabbi Meir said, and so was taught in a Ebrita in the name of Rabbi Akiva. It's a lot of rabbis. A lot of rabbis being quoted. But ultimately, it's Rabbi Akiva who said this. One must always accustom oneself to say everything that God does, he does for the best. Okay? And now the Talmud relates a story. The Gemara relates, second paragraph. Like this incident, when Rabbi Akiva was walking along the road and came to a certain city, he inquired about lodging and they did not give him any. He said, everything that God does, he does for the best. He went and slept in a field and he had with him a rooster, a donkey and a candle. A gust of wind came and extinguished the candle. A cat came and ate the rooster. And a lion came and ate the donkey. He said, everything that God does, he does for the best. That night an army came and took the city into captivity. It turned out that Rabbi Akiva alone, who was not in the city and had no lit candle, noisy rooster, or donkey to give away his location, was saved. He said to them, didn't I tell you, everything that God does, he does for the best. Let's unpack this story. So Rabbi Kiva's traveling, and he did not book a hotel in advance. Right? Remember, this is before Priceline, before Expedia, before Hotwire, before Hotels.com. Right? None of which are sponsors of tonight's class, even though they're all, they're all getting a free shout-out. So Rabbi Kiva is traveling, and he does not have a comment, but he figures. Once he gets to the city, he'll have a place to stay. What are the odds? By raise of hand. Have you guys ever had that experience? You're traveling to a certain place. You don't make advanced booking and you figure once you get there, you'll figure it out. I've done that. And I'll tell you why I've done that. It's because sometimes I drive and I don't know where I'm going to end up. I'm driving to Dallas or Orlando or Miami or New York. And, you know, I plan on stopping, but I don't want to limit myself. We'll see how far we can go. And once we get there, we'll figure it out. Well, Rabbi Akiva figured he'll figure it out. And he ended up sleeping in the forest outside the city. But he had with him his trusty candle, his trusty rooster, and his trusty donkey. Why do you think he needed all three? Help me out here. What's the candle for? Light. light. He's got to read. Remember, this is before the cell phones then did not have backlight. So to read your... No, this is true. To read your cell phone, you had to actually hold up a candle. And then, yeah, it was a whole, very complicated. Super duper complicated how that worked. All right, so he needed a candle for light. He needed a rooster for, help me out, an alarm. Again, the phones then did not have built-in alarms. It was very much 
focused on the task at hand. So he had no. So he had a, a, a candle for light, a rooster for alarm clock, and the donkey. What was the donkey for? <laughs> Maybe. Sorry. To, all right, and to transport himself, either to carry his luggage or to get around. It was his car. It was his car. Yes, absolutely. Right. He had a donkey. Right. Who doesn't have a donkey? We have even donkey. I don't know if you guys saw along the side of the building. There's donkey parking. It's a little bit of throw, it's throwback night. It's a whole thing. So anyway, fine. So that's what's going on. So he's got, he's got his ride, his donkey. He's got his alarm clock, his rooster. He's got his light. He's got the candle. And what happens? The Talmud says almost in one fell, one fell swoop. I think that's the expression. We don't know how long it took. The candle goes out. What else happens? The candle goes out. The cat, yeah, the rooster's gone. No alarm clock. And the donkey is also consumed. Where was this? I don't know. Here's what happens. Throughout, one second, throughout the story, one second, throughout the story, what is Rabbi Kiva saying? Call the Ovid Rachmana Letav Ovid. Whatever God does is for the best. And it turns out that by the morning, he discovers that some marauding marauders, because that's what marauders, I assume, did. They marauded, if that's the right term, the, right, the tents, right? Talking. They came in and they ran, they, they ca- took the city captive. I mean, that's terrible. But he, alone in the forest, without any light or any sound, right, to, to call attention to himself, he was spared. And he said, didn't I tell y'all when he reported the story back? He said, didn't I? I'm, this is exactly what he said with his southern twain. Didn't I tell y'all? Whatever God does is for the best. That is story number one. He faced adversity. He remained positive and hopeful, And it all worked out. Story number one. Let's go to story number two. Story number two is actually found inside our book. So now we're inside our text. So hopefully everyone has a copy. Does anybody need a printout? Here we go. You guys good? Yeah? Okay. So take a look. Natan, are you up to reading text one? All right, here we go. Text number one, page 120. Page 120. And here is, thank you. Yeah, I think we're good by now. Um, Text one, page 120. Here's the important thing to remember. This story is not with Rabbi Akiva. It is with a man named Rabbi Nachum. His name was Rabbi Nachum. Now, he was called by his nickname, Rabbi Nachum Ishkamzu, which I'll explain in a moment. Um, Rabbi Nachum, interestingly enough, and it's relevant to our conversation, was one of the teachers. Listen to this. One of the teachers of the aforementioned Rabbi Akiva. So we just did a story with Rabbi Akiva. He was a student. And now we're going to talk about a story that the Talmud cites about his... Teacher, Rabbi Nachum Ish Gam Zu, and we'll also talk about why he has that name. Uh, spoiler alert, it has nothing to do with a zoo. All right, take it away. Natan. Huh? Why, did they call him, why did they call him Nachum Ish Gam Zu? Because no matter what would happen to him, he would respond, Gam Zu Latova. This too is for the good. Yeah, so the Hebrew words Gam Zu Latova means this too is for the good. That was his motto. It became part of his name. Oh, Nachum. The this too guy. The, yeah. This too is for the good. Is used or zoo was the... Zoo. Yeah, it's like... Gamzu. Uh, is, is it grammatically correct? Is it Aramaic? Gamzu Latova? Gamzel Latova? 
All right, listen. He, he didn't win a grammar contest, but he was very positive. He thought he was going to win. Yeah, go ahead. Once the Jews wished to send Caesar a gift to gain his favor, they asked themselves, who should we send to present this gift on our behalf? Why don't we send Nahum and Ishkamzu? After all, he regularly experiences miracles, and we need one right now. They provided Nahum with a chest filled with jewels and pearls as a gift. Sent him on his way. During his journey, he had to spend a night in, in a certain inn. During the night, the folks living in that inn surreptitiously removed all the valuables from the chest and refilled it with plain soil. The next morning, Nahum realized what had happened. Unfazed, he trustingly declared, Gamzu this, too, is for the good. Nahum arrived at Caesar's palace and dutifully presented his gift. The royal officers opened the chest and saw that it was filled with soil. The Caesar roared. The Jews are mocking me and was about to execute the Jewish emissaries. Unfazed, Nahum Ish Gamzu trustingly declared, Gamzu Latavah, this too is for the good. Just then, Elijah the prophet appeared before the Caesar in the, the eyes of his, this, of his trusted minister. He suggested perhaps this is the special soil for, from the Jewish patriarch Abraham. When he threw soil in his war against the four kings, it miraculously turned into swords midair. When he threw stubble, it turned into arrows. The Romans were then at war with a province that had proven itself indomitable. They took some of this earth, tested it by throwing it toward the enemy lines, and rapidly conquered that province as a result. When the Caesar realized that the gift of soil indeed contained miraculous powers, he ordered his servants to enter his treasury and to fill the chest with precious jewels and pearls. He presented the chest to Nahum and Shkamzu as a token of appreciation and sent him off with great honor. Look at that story. Unbelievable. I mean, Israel could use some of that earth now. Imagine that. Throw some earth into the, into the, uh, into the sky. Swords and arrows. Unbelievable. Now listen to this. First of all, I, who, listen. Nahum arrived at the Caesar's palace. Hello. I mean, seriously. And he was coming with money. Caesar's palace. Do I need to explain? <laughs> He's like, guys. Here's the deal. I, can, I have one chest of, of gems. Give me one night at the tables. I'm going to get two chests. You know, hands up with soil. I'm kidding. That's not exactly what happened. But he does have, he does have the story. He, it, someone does a switcheroo. Someone steals all the gout. They replace it with, with earth. Consistently through the story, he says, Gam Zulatova. He's facing adversity. He's facing challenge. Right? Everything is falling apart. And this guy is... He's positive. He is optimistic. Gamzulatova, this too is good. This too is for the good. And that's it. And it all works out. Again, like Rabbi Akiva, his student, with the, the story with the rooster and the candle and the, and the donkey, they stay positive and it all works out. But I want to know from, from what you saw in the story, tell me the difference between the perspective of Rabbi Akiva, the student, and Rabbi Nachum Ish Gamzu, the teacher. They each said they had a different motto. Again, I'm just going to recap it, and it's in the motto that I want to focus on. Rabbi Kiva said, Kol da'avid rachmana, letav avid, whatever God does, is for the good. Rabbi Nachum says, Gam zu letova, this too is good. What's the difference? It's stuff that's going to happen in the future, and stuff that's happening now. Good. Who's in the future? Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva. Good. 
Rabbi Kiva is saying, whatever God does is for the good, which means that right now it might not be good. I mean, sleeping outside, that's annoying, right? That's uncomfortable. I have no light. I can't check my texts, right? This is terrible. Going back to that one, the well is still, the well is still well, right? Alarm clock is gone. How am I going to wake up? Right? He doesn't say, great, I can sleep in tomorrow, and I have an excuse. My boss won't, won't have a problem. He doesn't say that. He says, whatever happens is going to be for the good. He takes the long, he takes the long approach, plays the long game. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday it's going to work out good because everything that God does is ultimately for the best. That is Rabbi Kiva's perspective. And again, in the short term, in the immediate term, it's not good. He has, no, he has no bed. He's cold outside. He has no light. He has no rooster. He has no donkey. He, he, he um, experienced personal loss. This is not good. But he believed it would work out for the best. But what does Rabbi Nachum Ish Gamzu say? What does it mean, Gamzu Litova? What does that mean? This, this too, this right here is for the good. Not that this is bad, but it will lead to something good. No, 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 no. He goes even deeper. You with me on this? He is able to see in what by all, by all accounts would be something negative. He's able to see in that experience the good. His gems get swiped and replaced with, with earth, with soil. He has a chest full of dirt. He says, this is good. This is good. I mean, you can call this guy delusional, but he's like, this is good. He shows up to the king. The king says... That's it. We're going to kill you. Who brings earth in a box to the king? What kind of chutzpah is that? You're gone. Dead man walking. What does Rabbi Nachem Ishkamzu say? This is good. Right? And you know what happens? It actually is good. The whole way, he was never stressed. Rabbi Kiva was a little stressed. Even though he believed it's going to work out for the best, in the moment it's a little stressful until it works out. Rabbi Nachem goes a step further. He says, not only will it work out for the good, which it certainly will, I believe that this right now is good. Two different perspectives. So which is the deeper perspective? Who has the deeper uh, um, belief in the goodness? Who has the more optimistic belief? Who would you say? If you had a rank, Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Nachum, help me out. Rabbi Nachum, right, the teacher. So Rabbi Kiva, whether it's because he was a generation further down, right, one generation lower, right, or it's because there's situations, the scenarios were different. I mean, we can analyze that, but I don't, I don't think it's that productive. But either way, you know, we can analyze that. The bottom line is Rabbi Nachum's statement was, this too is good. This, Gamzu Litova, this is good. Rabbi Kiva had a different approach. Whatever God does is for the best. It may hurt, I may not see it, it may be painful in the moment, but it's for the best. It's going to work out. And I want to share with you tonight that as we go through the four different areas in life in which we can face adversity within our own lives, and we're going to do that. We're going to go through four different areas in life in which adversity can can meet us. We can take one of two approaches. I mean, we can take a third approach, which is to say this is terrible, right? This is, and, and collapse in front of the challenge, but that's not, we're not advocating that. I mean, that's, that's, that's an option, but that's off the table for tonight. We're going to advance two options, Rabbi Kiva option and the Rabbi Nachum option. The option that says, 
It doesn't look great, but it'll work out. That's one element of faith. And the other one is, this is good. Right here, right now. If we look at it, if we're able to tap into it, we can actually find something positive in the here and now. And we're going to give examples about how all this plays out in real life, in four areas. I, you know, I want to liken it almost. I don't want to like belabor this point, but just very quickly. It's almost like the difference between emuna and bitachon. What is emuna? Faith. Faith in God. What is bitachon? Trust in God. And I think we touched on this in a previous session. Maybe we did. Maybe we didn't. I don't remember. We might have. Emuna is belief that God can make this better. Trust is that this is good. That's a little bit of the difference. Bitachon is a little bit stronger than Amuna. And I think it lines up to these two, to these two perspectives. Maybe not exactly, but I think, they're, I think they're connected. Okay, let's move on. So now that we've established these two perspectives, let's look at them as they play out in real life with real adversity and real challenges. And let's see how um, the Rebbe used these two perspectives in various scenarios to reframe uh, the situation for the person who was dealing with the challenge. In other words, let me just say this very clearly. People would write letters. People would meet with the Rebbe all the time. And they would say, I'm going through this challenge. I'm going through this adversity. This is a difficult time in my life. And invariably, the Rebbe would advance one of these two perspectives, either hold on because it's going to get better, right? And you can not just passively, but work to, to achieve that better, that, 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 that positive outcome from the challenge. Or the Rebbe would sometimes advance even the higher level, Rabbi Nachum's perspective, which is this right now is good. You just got to look at it a little bit differently. Take a different angle and you'll see this is actually a blessing, not a challenge at all. You guys with me on this? Now let's, now let, let's, so I've set it up. That's the setup. Let's go into the details. All right. So what we're going to do is look at the first area of adversity and challenge, which we might call situational adversity. Now, what is situational adversity? It means adversity that comes from a, from something that happens to us. It's not self-generated. It's not something we've done. It's not something we feel. It's not coming from inside of us. It's coming from outside of us. Situational adversity. And the two stories in Act 2, we're up to Act 2 now, the heart attack and the blizzard. So here we go. The first story takes us, the heart attack story, takes us back to Shmini Atzeret, 1977, exactly 46 years to the day before October 7th, what happened in, in Israel. So it was the same day, Shmini Atzeret, 1977. The scene is Brooklyn, New York, the world headquarters of Chabad Lubavitch, 770 Eastern Parkway. Who has been to 770 Eastern Parkway by raise of hands? By raise of hands. Okay, if you've never been there and you're curious, join me for Shabbat in the Heights. Look at this plug. Look how smooth that was. This is like an in-program read. Look at this. I'm calling attention to it even. So proud. Shabbat in the Heights. Leah and I will be leading this trip in conjunction with JLI. A full Shabbat, Friday to Sunday, in Crown Heights, the epicenter of the Chabad movement. If you're interested, let me know. There's no party like a Brooklyn party. So, 
That's, that's that. Back to our story. The scene, 1977, 70 Eastern Parkway is the address. Shemini at Sarah at night. So in the diaspora, just explain something very quickly. In, sorry, outside of Israel, in the diaspora, i.e. outside of Israel, we have, for the holidays, we typically have two-day holidays. In Israel, typically, it's a one-day holiday. So the last days of Sukkot, which is called Shemini Atzeret Simchat Torah. In the diaspora, we have two days. Day one is Shemini Atzeret. Day two is Simchat Torah. In Israel, it's all combined into one crazy and wild day known as Shemini Atzeret Simchat Torah. It's one day. Chabad has a custom in the diaspora, outside of Israel, that on the night of Shemini Atzeret, again, it's a two-dayer, the night of Shemini Atzeret, we do Chabad synagogues, we do Hakafot, meaning we dance with the Torah. Completely for solidarity with Israel. Even though in most synagogues, they don't dance with the Torah until the next night, Simchat Torah. Chabad, we dance the first night outside of Israel because in Israel they're dancing, we're going to dance. Chabadings don't miss a party. I don't know if you noticed that. If there's a party anywhere, it's like, oh, you know the expression, it's 5 p.m. somewhere? Yeah, there's Hakafot somewhere. We're doing Hakafot here. It was that night in 1977 that the unthinkable happened. So typically, the Rebbe would stand and participate in the dancing throughout the evening festivities. But that night, he asked for a chair, and he sat down. Turns out he had suffered a massive heart attack. In fact, multiple heart attacks. They immediately cleared the synagogue, and there were thousands of people in the room, and you can imagine how the logistics of clearing the room, what that looks like, no, in the chaos, everyone was out of the room within moments. They brought doctors in and cardiologists, and they set up on the spot a field hospital in the Rebbe's office in the synagogue. Top cardiologists came in to take care of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And again, just imagine, I know we just went through this here with, you know, October 7th, the mixed feelings. On the one hand, it's, it's Shemin Atzeret, and then the next day it's Simchat Torah, it's a day of celebration. On the other hand, the Rebbe is, just had a heart attack, and no one knew what was the status, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to be, how is the Rebbe going to recover. This was an unknown, and certainly weighed very heavily on the hearts of everyone. So here's what happened. The next day, Rabbi Yol Khan gets up and makes an announcement. Let me tell you a little bit about Rabbi Yol Khan. He was the chief oral scribe of the Rebbe. He was the head of the human tape recorders, I, which I know I need to explain. The Rebbe would often speak on Shabbat and holidays when you could not record or write down, take notes. There was, there was a select group of individuals who had incredible minds and incredible memories who would recall word for word all of the talks of the Rebbe over a given Shabbat or holiday. And we're talking about hours of talks, intricate talks on the Talmud, on Kabbalah, on whatever, intricate talks. Oh, that guy's listening. Intricate talks on Torah, they would remember word for word. And after the holiday, they would transcribe everything. Or after Shabbat, everything would be transcribed. So this Rabbi Royal kind of just passed away a few years ago. So he got up and he said, I have an announcement to make coming directly from the Rebbe and the Rebbe's secretary. Yesterday, a doctor came, one of the doctors came to draw blood from the Rebbe. And the Rebbe asked 
the doctor the question as he was drawing the blood. What is it that draws the blood? Is it the needle, the puncture? Is it the needle? Or is it the syringe with the vacuum? And the, Rebbe, and the doctor answered, it's the vacuum. It's the vacuum that, that pulls the blood. And the Rebbe said, this is a beautiful lesson in life and a powerful lesson. And that is, when there is a void, when there is emptiness, right? That actually brings out more life and vitality, blood symbolizing life. It's the vacuum that actually brings out greater energy. And the message was, I may not be celebrating with you on Simchat Torah because he was needed, he needed medical attention. My absence should be like the vacuum that brings out even more joy. You with me on the message? That was the Rebbe's message. What was the Rebbe saying? We're go- I'm going through a physical challenge. Y'all, paraphrasing, our face are in a space of adversity. Your rabbi, your Rebbe is sick. No one knows what the, what the prognosis, how that's going to go. The Rebbe was saying, instead of being in a state of, uh, of, of uh, uh, foreboding, instead of being in, a, in an anxious state, you've got to continue with the joy and even more joy that comes from the absence and the pain. Let that pain or let that, let, let that um, absence be the vacuum that brings out even more joy and more energy. And indeed, the dancing that year was incredible. And that is what the Rebbe had asked for. So here we see, I would liken this to a Rabbi Akiva-like approach. None of this is good, right? A heart attack is not a good thing. But it can inspire those around to rally, right? To increase in their, in their Judaism, right? When something negative happens, I mean, let's, let's just be very frank. I'll be Rabbi Ari, but whatever, right? So think about October 7th, right? Think about what just happened. Terrible, horrific, right? And in the wake of this, Jews have come together. And so many mitzvot have been done. Does that make what happened good? Of course not. But is there a way to follow pain with positivity? Yes. Rabbi Akiva said, ultimately, after a negative, the belief is that something good can result, again, if we put in that effort. Again, we're not talking about justifying the negative. We're not justifying a heart attack. We're not justifying a terror attack or a war. Just saying that following negativity, there can be, and really it's up to us, there must be something positive born of that situation. That is a Rabbi Akiva-like approach. Let's talk about a Rabbi Nachum approach, seeing the thing itself as good. Remember, not in all cases can you take that approach. So let's look at a scenario where the Rebbe did use that approach, the higher level approach, and that is the story of the blizzard. The blizzard was a blizzard in 1979, February 1979, so pretty much exactly 45 years ago. So here's the context. There was a women's convention, conference, Chabad Women's Conference in, uh, over the weekend in Detroit, Michigan. The women in attendance were primarily from New York. They went to Detroit for a getaway. Now, just gonna make a comment. This is my own comment. Who planned a February getaway in Detroit? Right, February Detroit getaway? I don't know what the thought process was. Syracuse was busy. Huh? Maybe, maybe, maybe the airline, maybe the tickets. 
They were giving them away. Could be. All I know is that you know, I have two kids in Chicago, right? And uh, in yeshiva. And there's a father-son Shabbat. They don't schedule for December or January. They schedule for March. Now, that's no guarantee what March is going to look like. It's Chicago after all. But at least, they're, at least it's a little bit later. So this was Detroit. Um, the problem was, so it, it was Monday morning. And it was time for everyone to head back. And a blizzard had descended, not on Detroit, interestingly enough, on New York City. And all the flights to New York were grounded. Here's what happened next. The Sheikh Chabad Convention in Detroit, Michigan. Let's say 20 ladies went to figure out how many children did we leave at home. Hashem, I know it was in February 1979, and Monday morning, the women, uh, you know, took off for the airport because they were all planning to travel home. In Brooklyn, in the shadow of Grand Army Plaza, some parts of Eastern Parkway are plowed out. But as you can see here, other parts of the parkway are not at all plowed. These cars stuck and good. There was a terrible snowstorm. So all the ladies are sitting at the airport in Detroit, no planes. To give you an idea how bad it is and how long it may take for New York City to dig itself out of all of this snow, that tow truck is attached to this city snowplow. Miriam Popax, the head of Nesheikh Chabad out-of-town conventions at the time. Now her daughter, Mrs. Feldman, took over. She went to the telephone and she called New York. They have to get home, and here's the snowstorm, and they all, all began panicking. And they asked my mother to call up 770 and ask the Rebbe for a bracha that he should be able to travel home. These are the words of the Rebbe. Monday, the Baal Shem Tov's teaching that every occurrence contains a directive in serving Hashem is a topic that has been spoken of and discussed at length innumerable times. I am sure that you too have given speeches on this topic. Yet now, when an incident has happened to you, you seek to attach the most distorted possible interpretation that is absolutely amazing. The simple and obvious reason for the delay is this. It is possible to disseminate Torah and mitzvot to a far greater degree than was accomplished during the convention. You are therefore being granted the merit through the snow which descends from heaven of completing the above task with an extraordinary abundance and intensity of Judaism, similar to the extraordinary abundance of the snowfall. Your efforts in completing the convention's task of disseminating Torah and mitzvot should be extended to the city, the airport, publicity in the newspapers, etc. Women ran around the airport giving out Shabbos candles. Some women went off to the university campus. Some of them set up different booths in shopping malls, uh, also with Shabbos candles and talking to the women about all the mitzvahs of the Jewish women. After they reported to the Rebbe of everything they had done, this is what the Rebbe answered. It is a particularly great merit when the Almighty points with a finger 
and clearly shows one what to do from on high. May all your activities undertaken as a result of this divine indication be highly successful. It is obvious that each and every woman will soon travel and reach home, for she will have committed, completed her mission. Isn't that great? Okay, we have to, there's so much to talk about. All right, let's get the light back on. Thank you, Yaakov. Okay, here we go. Let's get, let's get the light. Oh, look at this. It's like after a movie. All right. Um, everyone online, can you guys uh, hear me? See me? Yes, you can't see me yet. Ta-da, back. Okay, guys, you saw that story? Here's what I love about that story. Some of you may have known that story about the snowstorm, but I, get, but I would bet you haven't seen it. You didn't see the women who were there talk about it in some original Channel 7, maybe, footage from Grand Army Plaza in, in Brooklyn. That was epic. Um, okay, here's what I want to point out from that. That is a Rabbi Nachum Ishgamzu approach. That's not saying that through the, that although this is, this is um, adverse conditions, right? The adversity will somehow lead to something good. The Rebbe was saying, God is literally giving you, uh, putting an opportunity on a silver cloud platter. Like everything is ready to go. In other words, you just had a convention. You had a conference. Women, powerful women, Chabad women, the most powerful women out there, they're gathering together. And what's the resolution? To have a greater impact on the world, to have a greater impact in spreading Yiddishkeit. And what's Hashem, what's God Almighty giving you the opportunity to do it? That day or the next morning, you thought you were going to go home and go back to your routines and back to work, back to your families? Not yet. Here you have an opportunity to immediately implement the resolutions of the convention. It's not adversity that, that also has an upside. This is clearly a blessing. Like the Rebbe said, the abundance of the snow should, should mirror or the, uh, the, the abundance of the mitzvot that are done as a result of the snowstorm. That was the Rebbe's take. It's like a nachem ishgamsu, like throwing the soil and watching it turn into arrows. This is watching the snowfall, or the snow is in New York, whatever, but having the opportunity to go around Detroit and make an impact because the planes were grounded. We've all faced adversity when it comes to travel plans. Things don't work out, right? A tire pops, right? Something happens. We're now on the side of the road. How do we show up in that moment? Do we say, there's three options. I don't even want to talk about option one. Option number one is we go kicking and screaming. That's off the table. The kicking and screaming is for sh- not even one of the two options tonight. It could be an option though, but it's not an option tonight. There's two options. Either Rabbi Akiva's option, this is not good, but so- I guess it's going to work out somehow. Maybe I'll get better tires than before or whatever that is. Or maybe, you know, had I gone there before, something could have happened, like Rabbi Kiva's story, whatever it is. Or we can take Rabbi Nachum's approach, which is Gamzu Latova. This itself is good. This is good. What's the good? I don't know. Maybe somebody will stop and we'll have a schmooze. We'll end up wrapping tefillin, right? Who knows? Who knows? But it's about keeping your eyes open because Gamzu Latova, this too is for the good. All right, so that is the first, um, the first area of, of analysis when it comes to situational adversity, whether it's the heart attack, whether it's the blizzard, 
um, the approach is that there's something positive, either that could come out from the negative or that the negative itself is actually positive. We're going to move on to act three. Any questions, comments on this so far? Make sense? The Rebbe, I mean, when he was saying that, you know, my, them drawing blood here is creating more of a, of a, a voice that I'm um, giving you guys space to, to party more, I guess. But wasn't that also Rabbi uh, Nachum's? I mean, this, this in itself is a good thing. I think the Rebbe was saying use the energy. Yeah. Use the, you know, the, the, the energy. Straight up the, that concern, that energy. Channel it into something positive. I don't know that he was saying, see, Rabbi Nachum Ish Gamzu is this is good. I don't know that, that, I think that would go a little too far when it comes to that situation with the heart attack. I don't think we would ever say, like, that's good. But it could be for the good, you know, it could be for something down the line that's good, which could be even the next day. It's for the good or the next moment. But this, not this itself, but the next, the next step could be good. Whereas Rabbi Nachum is saying, this is, the actual sand was good. It didn't lead to something good. It was good. The, 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 the stones, the gems being stolen, replaced with sand, that was actually good. I'll tell you why that was good. I didn't explain it before, but here's why it's, here's why it's good. Rabbi Nachum went to the, the Roman Caesar, Caesar's palace, right, to, uh, on a mission on behalf of the Jewish people. And what did he bring? To kind of, you got to smear, the, you know, you just got to like grease the wheels a little bit. What did he bring? Jewels. Let's be honest. You think the king already has guilt? Yeah. Absolutely. You know what the king didn't have? Dirt. Magical, <laughs> magical dirt. He didn't have that. That's the one. The magical dirt turned into weapons, right? Guided missiles from dirt that he didn't have. That's the one thing Rabbi Nachum could give him that he'd be like, whoa, I like you guys. What, do you, what did you come here for again? Absolutely. And you know what? Take back some gems. That's the one thing. He did. So it turns out it's not that it led to something good. The dirt itself was good. It's a little bit different than the heart attack. Not the heart attack was good. But it could lead to an extra energy that could be good. It's, it's, the nuance. it's, it's a nuanced difference, but I think it's important to note the difference. Because again, not every situation of adversity, it will be appropriate to use Rabbi Nachum's approach. Sometimes it's, that's not good, but we can respond with goodness. I mean, that's good to respond with goodness. Not that that's good. Okay, fine. Let's move on to the next case. What, hold on one second, Mark. Yeah? They both think that, uh, that Hashem caused that heart attack at that time? I don't know. I mean, look, at the end of the day, we have to say that God's in control of everything. But to, to go as far as to say that that's good, we would never, we never do that. That, that's, that, would be, that would be horrible to say that. But that the energy could be channeled into something good, into greater joy, to greater mitzvah commitment, Absolutely. Why not use this as an opportunity for something positive and something even better than before? But again, there's a, there's a difference between the two. Mark, what did you want to say? One second, Mark, jump in. My question is this. It's one thing to say bad things happen, and that can be turned. But what about tragic things? Yeah, so I want to leave out tragedy because honestly, that is a different conversation. When it comes to tragedy... We have a different, there's a different calculus. We're talking about, I mean, I, I, this doesn't even sound right, standard adversity. We say standard adversity. More like the, um, the typical stuff. Tragedy, I mean, we talk about like 
a Holocaust, that, that has to be a separate conversation. It's a good question, but it's like, it's the Holocaust question. That's, that's a different, that's a different topic. It's a different class. We have to, we have to keep that as a separate conversation. Um, okay. Let's, yeah. All right. So just for example, the heart attack. Would, yes. Uh, would the Rebbe have ever said, you know, I, I take some responsibility because I was eating, drinking too much schnapps or I was eating too much candy or, or is it all in God's hands? You know, is some of these. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it deals, that goes back to the health class that we did a few weeks ago where the Rebbe was very much an advocate of preventative health and making sure that we're, we stay on top and ahead of our health. Um, at the end of the day, no one can prevent all, like no matter how healthy a person is, stuff happens. Should one blame oneself? I don't think that's healthy. Should one say, you know, it was my fault? I don't know if that, I mean, unless that, unless that leads to, to some positive change, that's that. I, I don't know that, that the Rebbe spoke about it in that term. I think it was more about, okay, what now? What do we do now? Do we cancel Simchat Torah celebrations because the Rebbe is, you know, is in this very serious medical state? Or does the dancing go on? And if the dancing goes on, does that mean we're not, you know, we're just like tuning out, compartmentalizing what's really going on in the same building as, as their doctors tending to the Rebbe's health after this massive heart attack? And the Rebbe said, no, it's not compartmentalizing. This is, you know, it's, it's, it's that angst, it's that absence that can stir the greatest joy in a positive way. And that's all part of the, part of the larger picture. Um, Jules. Did you want to jump in? I think you're. I think you're muted. Okay. Yeah. So when you um, started the conversation about the Rebbe having a heart attack, you mentioned how it was at the same time that October seventh. Forty-six years to the day. Forty-six prior to. Mm -hmm. So when you were starting to talk about the Rebbe's story, it almost felt like you were. It was almost like a foreshadow to what happened on October 7th. And then yeah. we were talking about how tragedy, tragedy and the Holocaust is a different topic. But we didn't get yeah. there. So I right. know what you were trying to get at. What I was trying to get at is, you know, excellent question. So my thought, and I know I didn't articulate it because it was just a thought and a feeling that I had in the moment. My thought was a very similar. Emo I think you, I think we all can relate the idea of, on the one hand, it being a very happy day, and on the other hand, how can we dance? And, and that, was, that was the feeling 46 years ago, on that same day, in that synagogue in Brooklyn, how can we dance? Our Rebbe is, just had a heart attack. Well, what are we dancing for? Like, that's crazy. Like, how could we dance? So that's that story. Um, how it relates back, you're right, I didn't close the loop, because I don't know exactly I don't know that I know how that loop closes, but I know that this year on Simchat Torah here, I felt the same thing. I mean, I don't know the same. I don't know the same. I felt also confused. I'm like, are we just, are we just dancing and not thinking? Are we thinking and dancing? Are we dancing and crying? What are we doing? Like, what's, what, what, what are we doing? And I don't know that there's a right answer. And I don't know that we can easily, but I do know that, um, that must have been, on some similar level, not, not, not comparing exactly what they were feeling. And that's, that's what I was trying to say is, it's, it struck me as, as, I don't know, as, as, I don't know what the right word is. It just struck me that this is what was going on. Right, right. In a, I think her question was, had the Rebbe had 
his heart back on Earth. Mm -hmm. Were you trying to allude to something mystical about? No, no, no. That wasn't. That wasn't. I, I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. And, you know, had he added on Purim, you still had the same thing about dancing. Correct. And Correct. But yes. Were you alluding to some? No. Nope. There was no. The Rebbe had these like mystical like thoughts. Like he 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 just knew everything. So when you said that for me, it felt like oh my god, he he didn't know that something was going to happen on that day, but almost it was almost like. Something happened to him to kind of let the world know this day. Interesting. I, I didn't mean that, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Thanks for asking. I, but again, that's so, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but it's, it's interesting. No, I, I hear what you're saying. Okay. Now let's move on to the next area. Israel, Act 3, Israel and Washington. Now, another area of challenge. It's not situational adversity, but it's what I would call, I guess, interpersonal adversity. And that is, again, just being very straight up about what I'm talking about. This is where you feel like there's a person in your life or in your orbit that is being adversarial to you, straight up. They are challenging you. They're a thorn in your side. They are picking on you. They're attacking you. They're trying to cut you down at every turn. Whatever the scenario is, interpersonal adversity, where you feel that someone else, another human being, is your challenge, is your adversity. Um, again, just to reset, that we have two approaches that we're kind of following two paths. I mean, the third path is, I would say, unhealthy. But two healthy paths, Jewish paths that the Talmud teaches, Rabbi Akiva's path, this is not good, but what can we do about it? How can we grow from it, through it? How can we become stronger through the adversity? That's one path, but it's not good but it could lead to something good, versus Rabbi Nachum's path that says, no, this is actually good. This is actually good. So how does that show up in interpersonal adversity? Let's go. So I want to share with you two videos. We're going to do two videos. One, a video about Israel or adversaries in Israel, and one, adversaries in Washington. Let's start with the Israel. Let me, let me give you a little bit of background. In the Israel video... There will be two individuals that are featured. Both came to the Rebbe, visited 770 Eastern Parkway, Central Chabad HQ in 1990. Both stories happened in 1990. The first story happens with a man named Ron Nachman, an Israeli politician who founded the Judean town of Ariel. He visits the Rebbe in 1990, and you'll see it. You'll see the dialogue, subtitled, everything. He tells the Rebbe, I'm not going to give everything away, but the, the long and short of it is, he says, he's been working, he's been accomplishing, he's doing all these things, but he feels like there are political adversaries that are trying to cut him down, that are investigating him, etc., and he feels like he is being attacked. What do I do? That's the first one, or he's asking for blessing. That's the first story, and you'll see what the Rebbe, how the Rebbe responds. The second story is with Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, who you may know um, is the former chief rabbi, Ashkenazi chief rabbi of the entire Israel. At that time in 1990, he hadn't yet been appointed the chief rabbi of the entire Israel. He was the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. And he shares with the Rebbe, again also in 1990, that he had just, he was working on this project to build this mikvah, Right, this uh, ritual immersion bath to build this mikvah in accordance with Chabad 
protocol, and he was getting attacked from other rabbis for doing it in a Chabad-friendly way, and he was, you know, it was paining him, and the Rebbe gave him a perspective and how to think about that. So that's the setup, and now we're going to show one video that has both of these stories in it. Let's unpack this story. These two stories. So what did the rabbi say to the first, the first guy, the mayor? Yeah, what did you guys, uh, what did you guys get from that? What does he tell him? The mayor's complaining. They're said they're coming after me. Investigations, police, the whole deal. What does the rabbi say? They're gonna do it. They're gonna do. People do what they want to do because they have free choice. You can't control them. Yeah. You're asking me for a blessing, right? What's the blessing that they should be stopped? They have free choice. What does the rabbi say? My blessing to you is. And what's the next thing? Double down. Go even stronger. In other words, this is not good, but what should your response be? Go bigger. Go bigger. Right? What's the response to adversity? Find positive. Be inspired by it. Go bigger from it. This is Rabbi Akiva's. This is Rabbi Akiva. This is not good, but let's create some goodness from this. Let's make, turn this into a positive, a net positive. Great. That's the first story. What's the second story? Rabbi Lau comes to the Rebbe and says, we just authorized this mikvah, but man, it was, it was a fight. I haven't seen this type of, of fighting in 15 years amongst the rabbis in Tel Aviv. And what's the problem? They, they opposed the Chabad-style mikvah. Why? I don't know. I actually don't know. But they opposed the Chabad-style mikvah. He says, we pushed it through. What does the Rebbe tell him? You saw what he told him? I have to explain. You got it done. You got, right, but there's something about a document. Let me explain. Let me explain the halachic uh, reference. It's a good thing we contest 
Yes, it was a good thing that it was contested. Why? Because here's the halachic idea. If you, if you have a document that says anything, a legal document, we, no one knows if it's valid or not. Maybe you, maybe you photoshopped it. How, do, how does anyone know? But if it's contested, if someone says that's not legal, and they take you to court, and then you go to court, and you vindicate, no, you prove that it's legal, guess what? That document can no longer be contested. A contested document that withstood the contention is stronger than it was before. In other words, what the Rebbe was telling Rabbi Lau is you had an idea. It was contested, but clearly, you said Wednesday, you got it authorized. Clearly, you were vindicated. That means that now this mikvah can, no, can never be contested ever again because it was contested. You overcame the contest station, right? You, whatever that, whatever the word is there, you overcame the contention and you got it done. You guys with me on this? Again, the Rebbe's finding the silver lining in the negativity. Not saying, not saying that the investigation is good. Not saying that the, you know, the, 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 um, the controversy with the mikvah, not that that's good, but it could lead to you redoubling your efforts. It can lead to a stronger mikvah, not physically, but a stronger case for the mikvah. It's going to be good. It's going to work out for the best. That is all those both videos or both stories in that video, a Rabbi Akiva approach. So I want to share with you another story. A Rabbi Nachum approach. Again, depending on the situation, depending on the person, you could pull out one of these two cards. Tonight, the goal is, let me just be very transparent. Oh, you can see right through me. Kidding. Let me be very, tough crowd. Tough crowd. So I'll be very transparent. Tonight, the goal is to share these two perspectives and stories in which they're used in, very, to, in various ways. And the goal is that the next time you and I are faced with ad adversity, with a challenge, whether it's a person or a thing or a snowstorm, whatever it is, that maybe in that moment we can respond. We can say, oh, wait a second, wait a second. Let me, let me get myself centered. Hold on. How can I take lemons and make lemonade, Rabbi Kiva? Or how can I even see this as good? One of those two, I'll let you choose. But here's a story about the second approach, how this is good. Washington. Story was told by... Professor Alan Dershowitz. At the Chabad Shluchim, Chabad Rabbis International Conference, probably about a decade ago, he spoke, and he shared the following story. I'm going to pull up, we'll pull it up on the video. In the story, he shares that he wrote a letter to the Rebbe in 1982, criticizing what Chabad was doing, and how the Rebbe opened his eyes to see a different truth, a different reality. That's all I can say in the lead-in. Now to the videotape. I remember I had the chutzpah once to write him a letter, saying, Rebbe, how come for your 80th birthday, you decided among those you wanted to honor was Senator Jesse Helms. At the time, Senator Jesse Helms could, I think, be fairly described as a Sone Israel. He was not a friend of the Jewish people. He was not a friend of Israel. So, in my naivete, I wrote the Rebbe a letter. 
he wrote me back one of the most beautiful responses. He said, you honor not only to influence the past, but to influence the future. He said, watch, watch Senator Jesse Helms over the next years and see whether or not our decision was the correct one. Within a year of that honor, Jesse Helms had become one of the strongest supporters of Israel in the United States Senate. And as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, one of its most important. You live and you learn. And I learned a great deal. Okay. So that was that video. I'm going to do a little bit more explaining. Okay. Here we go. Here's some explanation and context with that video. So with that story. First of all, Chabad didn't honor Jesse Helms. I think he got the story a little bit not exactly accurate. Basically, Chabad in Washington, they have lots of events, and they invite all of the politicians, no matter what the affiliation, etc. they invite everybody to join. And Jesse Helms came, but he, Alan Dershowitz, was offended that Jesse Helms would be there. He thought that Jesse Helms was not a, a, a supporter of the Jewish people in Israel, and so he said, it's, how dare, what a chutzpah that he, uh, that he shows up, or that he's invited, that he's honored. Again, he wasn't really honored. And the response of the Rebbe was, take it easy. Take it easy. We're not looking to create more enemies. You want to say everyone's invited except for this guy? <laughs> That's going to help. What do you say? Kill him with love or eh, transform him with love? Within, within, a few, within a year or whatever it is, Jesse Helms became a friend of, a friend of Israel. He, he, he transformed his position. What's the point? What's the message of the story? Um, this is not a situation where you look at someone who is an adversary and you say, well, you know, as an adversary, I'm going to fight you and I'm going to emerge victorious and be stronger than before. That's what the Rebbe told this guy, uh, uh, Ron Nachman, from, from Ariel in, in Israel. That was that message. This is different. This is don't look at him as an adversary. Look at him as a potential ally. If you create the right relationship, you might be able to flip him. This is a Nachum Ish Gamzu approach. This is, this is not sand. This is not earth. This is not dirt. These are arrows. This is not an enemy. This is an ally. He just doesn't know it yet. He just doesn't know it yet. A few years ago, we brought in Rabbi Telushkin wrote a biography of the Rebbe. Rabbi Telushkin is a rabbi in um, I think Los Angeles. And Rabbi Telushkin said one of the lessons that he learned from the Rebbe is how to disagree without being disagreeable. An art that I believe is completely lost in 2024 by many people. Because if someone disagrees with you, they become enemy number one. Canceled! I won't talk to you. How dare you? You mean nothing to me. You ever have someone, ever, ever see that? Right? Disagree. I don't like what you're doing. I like what you're saying. Yeah, that's it. You're out. One second. Where's the nuance? Where's the, not even nuance. What's, you disagree. Say, fine, I disagree. But where do we agree? Because we can still work together on many things. I'll tell you a story about exactly this point. Rabbi Yossi Lu. He's a local Chabad rabbi, used to live in this community, now Chabad of Peachtree City. Rabbi Yossi Lu's father is Rabbi Shmulu in London. 
And there, uh, Chabad in, in the UK was running, at some point in time, you know, years ago, was running a mitzvah campaign, uh, one of the Chabad mitzvah campaigns. And there was another rabbi in London who was, for whatever reason, opposed to that campaign. And Rabbi Lou either met with the rabbi or wrote a letter to the rabbi saying, saying what, what do we do with this guy? Here's a rabbi in, in London, and he's fighting against us. You know what the rabbi responded? He said, Rabbi Lou, there are 612 other mitzvot that you can partner with him on. <laughs> Again, do you look at him as an enemy? Or do you say, all right, let's just leave this one. Let's just agree to disagree. Let's see where we can work together. There are 600. If this one mitzvah, if we can't see the eye, eye to eye on how to best promote this one, no problem. There's 612 other ones to deal with. That is a powerful approach. That is not saying my adversary is my adversary, but it, it will make me stronger. That's a Rabbi Akiva approach. This is saying this too is good. This person is my ally. I just need to open them up. You with me on this? This is a Rabbi Nachum approach. Okay, let's move on. Yeah, you got this? Makes sense? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, more or less. Let's move on to the next section. Act Number four, take a hike to the moon. Here we go. We're talking now about the next area of adversity, which is inner adversity or inner challenge. This is where a person realizes within themselves that they are the problem or that they have areas within themselves that are not so desirable. So what do we do then? How do we face our own inner adversity, our own in internal challenges. Once again, we'll see the Rebbe's approach taking both forms. The Rabbi Akiva form, which is, it's a challenge, but it can make you stronger. Or the Rabbi Nachum approach, which is, this is not even a challenge. This is a good thing. What you thought is a challenge is actually good. Let's see this in full display in HD. Let's see this. Let's start with... The first approach, the approach of Rabbi Akiva. And for this, we're going to look at another Talmudic story, the story with the hike. Take a look. I know we haven't done a lot of text, but let's, let's jump to text number six. So please flip your books to page number, turn the page to page number um, 129. Story from Talmud Tractate Sukkah. I will read this. This is a wild tale. Abaye, he was one of the great rabbis of his time. Abaye her overheard a man suggest to a woman, let's get up early in the morning and travel together. Okay, well, you know what that means. Well, that's what, Rabbi Kiva, that's what Abaye thought. So when she agreed, Abaye told himself, I'd better follow them to prevent them from doing something forbidden together. So he hears, just, just to pause here for a quick moment, we set this up. Abai overhears this guy say to this woman, hey, let's go hiking in the morning. And he's like, hiking? I know what hiking is. I'm not going to let you guys go hiking. I'm the rabbi of this place. You will not go hiking without some surreptitious um, chaperoning. It's kind of like, you know, the movies where the teenagers are going out on the date 
and they look around the back seat. There's the parent there, right, kind of sneaking, like watching, right? That's what's going on over here. The rabbi is following behind. Let's, let's continue. He shadowed them. I love this. I love this description. He shadowed them for a distance of three parasangs, approximately 12 miles. He trudged through a reed-filled marsh while they walked along the road beside it. In other words, they're walking the road, and he's like trudging along the marsh, um, However, they did not use the isolation and the early hour as an opportunity to sit together. In other words, they actually went hiking. And that's it. Because he was taking all the good hiding spots. <laughs> Apparently. They're like, what's, like who's, the, who's the guy like following us? This is so bizarre. Kidding. No, they, but nothing happened. Nothing happened. As they parted ways, Abaye heard them commenting, the road was quite a run, but the company was certainly fun. In other words... Had a great time, but that but it was just kosher, innocent, hanging out. Totally platonic. Abaya then told himself, if I were that man, I wouldn't have managed to restrain myself from sinning with her. And you know what he realized in that moment? That well, hold on. Why did he as Abaya, why did he suspect? Why did he suspect that something was going on? Because that's what he would have done. What do we call this in psychology? Projection, projection, right? This is classic projection. He's like, once, what? He, because if that were me, totally nefarious activity would have been going on. Um, so at that point, he realized, one second, he's not the villain. I'm the one that's that's uh, that has these thoughts, and I followed them, and I suspected. And so at this point, let's continue the last paragraph. As he stood in thought, slouched against the doorpost, and feeling distressed, a certain elder approached him and said, a greater person has a greater inclination to sin. And he was kind of making him feel better. He's like, Abaya, you're a great man, but because of that, you have a great Yetzer, Yetzer great evil inclination, etc. So don't feel so bad. Now, how do we typically understand that line? The greater, and it's found in other places as well. The greater the person, the greater the inclination to sin. Typically, we understand that as being, so since God has to keep everyone with free choice, right? As the Rebbe said, you know, we, and we know, right? Everyone has free choice. So if someone has a lot of good, a lot of light, God has to also give them a lot of shadow because otherwise they, it would be too easy for them. So the greater the person, the greater the eights are. Correct? That's typically how we understand it. Yes, I'm going to assume everyone's saying yes. Okay. However, the Rebbe actually in 1968 shared a very unique interpretation that goes the other way, flips everything backward and says, you know why the person is great? It's because they've been contending with a very powerful evil inclination. Not that the, that the goodness brings with it negativity, but the negativity leads to a greater depth of goodness. In other words, no pain, no gain. Or like Arnold Schwarzenegger once said, I pump you up, right? I don't know, whatever. Right? That the, the, strong, the greater the resistance, the greater the strength born of that resistance. That's like workout 101. Ratchet up the resistance, ratchet up the strength. The stronger you are, the greater the inclination of the sin. Not that it works from light to darkness, but from darkness to light. And in 1968, it was the end of 68. It was shortly after December 24th, 1968. You know what happened December 24th, 1968? I'll tell you what happened. The Apollo 8 mission. First manned spacecraft to orbit 
the moon. They didn't land on the moon yet. That would come a few months later. But the first manned spacecraft to orbit the moon, NASA sent it up December 24th, 1968. You ever see that famous photograph called Earthrise? It's a gorgeous, glowing blue uh, arc of the Earth. I heard a podcast. The astronaut who took that picture, I heard him say this in an interview. He said, we traveled from Earth and we were going around the moon and the moon was so ugly. It was gray with craters. That's it. It was ugly. And then we circled around and as we came back around, we saw the beginning of the glow of, of Earth and it was gorgeous with the colors with the blue, with the green, with signs of life. And he said, and I realized in that moment, and it got him with all the gods that you can feel. He said, I realized in that moment that everything we know, all the people, all the history, all the stories, all happen on that one small planet. The earth. So a few days later, was Shabbat. And in Brooklyn, New York, the Rebbe spoke about this mission. And he said that the NASA scientists faced a challenge. There's a bit, of a, a bit of a conundrum over here. You know, to get to outer space, you need fuel. What's the problem with fuel? It's heavy. 90%, here's a fun fact, 90% of a spacecraft's weight is in the fuel. So the first inclination is, oh, let's lessen the fuel, lessen the fuel, you can't get to outer space. So you have more fuel, but now you can't go because it's too big, it's too heavy. So the Rebbe explained that the NASA scientists had to find that perfect balance between enough fuel, not too much fuel, enough to get you out, but not enough to weigh you down. And so here's the magic. The magic is, and here's the perspective. That which you consider to be a weight schlepping you down is what really propels you upward. You with me? That which could otherwise be seen as a drag is in reality what propels you to the moon. And this is how the Rebbe explained the value of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. It's intended to take us up. Text number seven, let me read this, 131. In order that the good inclination should be able to soar even higher, there's a need for a tremendous quantity of material, mass, the inclination for evil that stands in opposition. The more this quantity is increased, meaning the more powerful one's inclination for evil, so will the ascent caused by overcoming it be all the higher. It's the foil that brings out, that brings out the best within us. It's the antithesis that makes the thesis that much stronger. Text number eight. Here's a letter that the Rebbe wrote in 1986 to someone who was struggling with some personal issues and challenges. No human being can answer such questions which only Hashem the Creator can answer. In other words, this person was asking, why me? Why am I faced with this challenge? The Rebbe says, I, I'm not God. I can't answer the question. Only God can. One observation that can be suggested in relation to the question, why me? If an individual experiences a particularly difficult or trying situation, it may be assumed that God has given him extraordinary powers to overcome the extraordinary difficulty. The individual concerned is probably unaware of his real inner strength. The trial may therefore be designed for the sole purpose of bringing out in the individual his hidden strength, which after 
Overcoming his problem can be added henceforth to the arsenal of his revealed capacities in order to utilize both for infinitely greater achievements for the benefit of himself and others. In other words, what the Rebbe is saying in simple English, if I were to paraphrase, you don't know how strong you are until you faced adversity. The greater the adversity, the greater you need to dig deep within yourself. And when you dig deep, the deeper you dig, the, the greater the strengths that you'll find. And so we can't say why no one, no human being should ever attempt to explain why, why, why some person, why someone else is experiencing challenge. But the Rebbe says, I'm not explaining it. But here's one response. One response is, you have a challenge, a big challenge, dig deep. If you dig deep, you will find powers, abilities that you never knew that you had, that you would never find. Otherwise, once you un uncover them, now they're yours to use. Now they're yours, you add it to your arsenal. Now they're in your toolbox. You got it. This is all of this. The hike, the rocket, this text, text eight, I don't have a cool name for it, right? But, but these stories are all the Rabbi Akiva approach. This is not good. This is not okay. It's, it's not coach. This is not good. But it could lead to a greater strength. It could lead to a breakthrough. It could lead to greater heights. So this is pulling you down, but you can push against it and go higher. You can dig deeper. You can discover something. All of that is a Rabbi Akiva approach. This is not good, but it's for the best if we create that, if we, if we do the work. But now I want to share with you the second approach, also regarding personal challenge. Second approach, a Rabbi Nachum Ishgamzu approach that says, not that this is inner adversity that I can overcome and become stronger. What I'm calling inner adversity is not adversity at all. This is a blessing. What does that look like? You're about to see two stories. The first, one video, two stories. The first story is with a man named, give me a moment. His name is Abba Brennanson, a Torah scribe who today lives in Kfar Chabad, Israel, who did not grow up religious or observant. And on his 19th birthday, he met with the Rebbe and asked for guidance to correct what he thought of as his inner flaws. And we'll see what the Rebbe, um, how the Rebbe replies. The second story in the same video is with Rabbi Mendel Lipsker, who is the chief Chabad rabbi of the country of South Africa. And he shares a story that happened when he was a yeshiva student, and he uh, asked the Rebbe for advice dealing with what he thought was a negative character trait. And the Rebbe basically told him, what you think is negative is actually a net positive. Not because you have to fight against it. No, no, it, this itself, what you're calling negative is positive. So now to the videotape. We go. I came to Grand Heights to uh, try out Yiddishkeit, to go into Yeshiva. I wanted to see if I wanted to be religious. I ended up staying there for four years or uh, a little more. In those years, I requested from the Rebbe a tikkun. I wasn't happy with some of the things, the way I behaved in the past. Okay. The Rebbe said, use it as a lever against itself. 
For example, if you are such an egoist, if you see someone else learning better than you, say to yourself, I can certainly learn better than that. And then go and do it. And when the Yitzhahara sees what it's being used for, he'll stop bothering me. Okay, that's the end of the Yechidas. He was saying to me, you have to realize that God is good and everything that you experience in this world during your life, even if your own inner uh, negative character traits or whatever, it's all from God and it all is nothing more than an opportunity. When I was studying in Montreal, uh, I was having a great difficulty with my uh, study partner, with my Chavrusa. We would be at loggerheads with each other. We would study the Talmud, the Gemara, whatever he would say, I would say differently, whatever. I would say he would say differently. And uh, I went to the Rebbe, I thought there was something wrong with me, that uh, I'm just arguing with the guy all the time. And I told the Rebbe that I need uh, some guidance as to how to handle this. The Rebbe said, uh, it would appear that one of your latent gifts is a pinnacle, the ability of analyzing and arguing and uh, coming to a certain conclusion, not simply straightforward, that ever so that I should spend time in working at you know, you could have taken a situation which, well, to me it was quite destructive and, and quite negative, and that it was some tremendous power and tremendous opportunity and tremendous potential in terms of developing a certain level of study. So here's the deal with, uh, with, with the Rebbe's advice here. We had um, this guy Brennanson and Rabbi Lipsker. Um, in both situations, in both instances, what the Rebbe was telling them is what you're seeing as a negative is actually not such a negative. Who says it's a negative? Right? Oh, you have, you know, Abba Brennanson wasn't really, he wasn't specific about what he said. So for example, if it's ego, I don't know what he asked and what the Rebbe exactly answered. But if it was ego, like he felt too, too much pride, so use that pride, use it for good. You have a lot of pride, great, use it to study. 
Use it as a positive. Don't look at it as a negative. Use it as a positive. To Rabbi Lipsker said, you're argumentative. Oh my gosh, I have a character flaw. I'm argumentative. What? Is that a character flaw or is it a tool that you can use in Talmudic study? Be argumentative and come up with new, new angles in Torah study. Use it to your advantage. Use your character to an advantage. Again, this is the Rabbi Nachum Ish Gam Zu approach. This is saying Gam Zu Latova. This itself is also good. Now, it doesn't mean to run, to have our ego take, get the better of us and be argumentative in, in, in situations where it's not called for. What the Rebbe was saying is channel it into areas that are healthy. Or tell yourself, me? I'm going to make that mistake. Do you know who? You know, when some people get pulled over, like, do you know who I am? Tell yourself that. Do you know who I am? Why would I do something, that uh, ugly behavior, debased behavior, inappropriate behavior? Tell yourself, do you know who I am? Use your ego in a positive way. Again, there's two approaches. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Nachum. Rabbi Akiva's approach is, it's negative. Fight against it, you'll become stronger. That's one approach. In some situations, you got to go that way. But in other situations, you can say and you can discover that this negative is actually a positive. Leverage it, like a lever, leverage it for the positive. I want to end with one final thought. We talked about facing adversity in situations, blizzards, health situations that happen to us. We talked about facing adversity in interpersonal relationships. What if that guy is attacking me? What do I do? And we talked about face handling adversity when it's coming from within, internal adversity, internal challenges, internal negative drives and desires. The final adversity I'm going to speak of again just for, for a minute is the adversity, the adversity of uh, national adversity or historical adversity. As a people, we have faced challenges throughout the years. We have faced persecution, pogroms, a holocaust. We have faced the worst of the worst. Expulsions and, and religious persecution and, and slavery and exile. You name it, we've got it. And yeah, there's a teaching that says, although we're not explaining tragedy like I said before, there is a teaching that says that the darkest of nights lead to the lightest of mornings. Right, The darker the night, the more brilliant and bright is the dawn that follows. And we believe that. We believe that. We believe that there is a better time coming. But I'll end with this. I'll end with this. There's another way to look at it. And another way to look at it is something we can't fathom. Can we even fathom that in the negativity there is good? The idea that we have to fight against the negativity and create a greater good, sure, sure. We don't want that. We don't ask for it. But, but that's what we must do. But to see the light within the darkness is something that today is not possible. That's the unanswerable question. As I said before, to explain tragedy. But here's what I know. And here's what we know. Here's what we believe in. We believe that there will come a time when Mashiach comes, the ultimate redemption, when the cloak will be lifted from our eyes and we will be able to see all of the truth, and the purpose of everything. And in that time, all of our tears will be dried because there will only be goodness and blessing. And we will see how indeed everything was part of the master plan and everything indeed was by divine design to lead us to 
the desired result or the, the ultimate destination. So may we soon have that time, a time where there's no more pain and no more suffering, no more questions, no more darkness, no more adversity and no more challenge. May it be speedily in our days. And let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining me tonight for lesson number five of Advice for Life. I hope you found it. Thank you, thank you. I hope you found it meaningful. I hope you found it enlightening and illuminating. I do want to mention that next week we are having our final session, same bat time, same bat channel. The topic next week is called Spiritual Heights. Um, We are going to explore the Rebbe's unique and innovative approach to self-improvement both in the areas of personal growth and in growing our influence on our surroundings. As we've come to see in our past lessons, the Rebbe's approach often challenges conventional thinking, and the same will be um, in this uh, area and the topic of self-improvement. That is coming up next week in our final session. By the way, when I say final session, we got more courses coming up. I'm going to announce some things coming up next week. But one thing I do want to get on everyone's radar, because I don't think I mentioned this tonight, wink, wink, I know I did, is this uh, Shabbat in the Heights. If you're interested in, in uh, exploring, like actually walking the streets of the nerve center of Chabad, you know, international, join me in May. Look at that. I even know the date when I look at the, at the flyer. May 17th through 19th in New York. Top restaurants. We're talking about the greatest food, the greatest speakers, inspiration, Shabbat together, singing and dancing and learning and eating and maybe a little chaim, whatever it is, in the heart of Crown Heights. You don't want to miss this. If you're interested, let me know. We'll talk about it. All right. Um, wishing everybody Shavuot Tov. Actually, Wednesday night, we say Shabbat Shalom. Have a good Shabbos, everyone. And thank you very much. Thank you very much, doctor.